0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Sheree Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, We best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. The episode you're about to hear has been previously recorded with either a live or online audience and edited for length and clarity. To listen to the full conversation, simply go to our website at ttf.org. So whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. We are so delighted to welcome our guest, whose new forthcoming book, He Saw That It Was Good, explores the way in which the creative act of storytelling and art making can help us reimagine and even heal the brokenness of the world. He explores the ways that our stories form both our identities and our culture, how they can lead to flourishing when they are grounded in love and truth telling, and to injustice when they are not. He opens the possibilities for reimagining and repairing the distortions in our stories as an act of vocation and worship, a reflection of the Creator God. And he ends with a call to creativity that can, in his words, make new worlds and new realities and a more lucid image of how the world was supposed to be. It is a fascinating and a challenging summons, and it's hard to imagine someone who could make it with more creative or compelling force than our guest today, Sho Baraka. Sho is an internationally known recording artist, songwriter, director, and author. He's created and released at least four rap albums, both with Reach Records and with his own label, which he co-founded, High Society. He's also a co-founder of Fourth District, a curated platform for artists and thinkers, a co-founder of the AM campaign, and an adjunct professor at the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. He has been called one of the most strikingly original Christian thinkers of his generation, Frederick Douglass with a fade, and is the author of the forthcoming new work, He Saw That It Was Good, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Show, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. I feel so f- sophisticated right now, as long as you know, <laughs> Sheree. That introduction was very professional and NPR-ish, and no, so now well, I feel like I have a high standard I have to live up to.
0: Thank you. We are really glad to have you here today. <laughs> so your book is all about story, so it seems only fitting to kind of start out with your own story. What led you to write this book? What's the story behind it? And what did you most want your readers to take away?
1: I think um, this story is, I think, a life lived, if you will. Very similar to music, oftentimes the first project that an artist makes is probably their most authentic and uh, and intimate because it's you've been thinking about all the things you've been wanting to say and you finally have a platform in which to say it. So this book, I, I would say, is is really the formation of a young man whose parents gave him Harlem Renaissance or literature to read, whose brothers gave him hip hop to listen to, who's lived in Southern California and you know lived through the Rodney King trial, the OJ trial, who's experienced race riots, who went to a HBCU college in Alabama, Tuskegee University, who's been in evangelical spaces, both black and white, uh, who's made art and traveled the world. And all of those worlds have gold and shadow. All of those worlds are responsible for making me the individual that I am. And so when I finally landed on writing a book, I said, you know, originally I actually wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write a a novel. I just love, you know, fiction. Grew up reading it. Some of my favorite people today are novelists who are dead and gone, some still alive. And I just wanted to emulate that. I feel like Art has a way, a a brilliant way of disarming people, Mm -hmm. engaging conversations that probably lectures and sermons couldn't. And I've seen that utility in my own work, but it made more sense that, you know, for people who knew me as a public thinker, somewhat of an advocate and activist to write a book that was probably nonfiction that told stories about my life, but as I tried to do it, include some fiction. So really this is just, How has show been formed? How can I help people through the process of what stories have done to them? How to help them tell better stories? How they can see stories as a way that has been weaponized for good and for bad? And how we have been shaped by theologies and stories that are oftentimes maybe anemic when it comes to biblical principles. And so what I want the reader to walk away with is A sense that one, good is there, but good is not always fixed. Sometimes good vacillates and sometimes it can, it can be elusive. And I'm not teaching relativism, but I am teaching that sometimes situations call for different actions. And sometimes you can be the hero and sometimes you can be the villain. Sometimes our work can cause great flourishing. Sometimes our work can cause great detriment. Sometimes the stories you can tell can bring great affirmation and sometimes they can bring uh, assimilation that can be harmful to a culture and people. I wanted them to to walk away understanding that we are made to be good in God's image. We are also made to create good and that we have to think deeply about ourselves and do a lot of inventory on on what our work is doing in the present.
0: So you talked about story in your book as being formational, both to our personal sense of identity as well as our, our cultural sense of identity. And it makes one wonder, what, what makes a story good?
1: I think one, and I've heard many theologians and thinkers pontificate over this. I think the one thing is it tells the truth about society. And that doesn't mean that that truth is always necessarily a, a biblical truth. It doesn't always have to be like, thus says the Lord. But if I am talking about love and marriage and parenting, and all I do is, is I, I bring the gold in the marriage in the parenting, and I never talk about the depression. I never talk about the, the, the postpartum. I never talk about the fact that I, sometimes I don't like my children. <laughs> you know, and I think there is this veneer that a lot of Christian art puts on because we feel like the more authentic we are, the less credibility we will have or that we're, we're, we're promoting some sort of sense of evil. Or in order to engage this, that we, we may take on the contagion of evil. And I don't think that's the way that Jesus is operated. He wasn't necessarily a, a, afraid of association. He understood that he can operate in the darkness because he brought light. And I think oftentimes what we do is we just avoid the darkness altogether. And I think this is something that brilliantly done in the art of, of like a Flannery O'Connor who mm-hmm. dealt with the grotesque and she brought the truth to the South. She spotlighted what a lot of people would find the great traditions of the South, but she also spotlighted the, the shadows of its racism and its... And it's classism and there's different types of shadow in the agrarian, I guess you can say culture, that it was there. And so to only talk about the, the brilliance and, the, and the, the light of a culture, I think tells a dishonest story. And so, but I also think we can get it bad by making, and I think Tim Keller does this brilliantly, when you, when you make the solution something other than Jesus and you make the problem something other than sin, I think that is something that m- keeps me in this particular parameter of how to tell a good story. I can talk about marriage. I don't, I don't have to talk about it. When I make a love song, right? When I first became a Christian, I was like, let me write, write a love song. I felt like the only thing I could say is like, well, I love you girl because Jesus loves me first. <laughs> and I'm like, sometimes that's an obstruction to a good song. Like, you know, I think about Stevie Wonder and you know, Ribbon in the Sky. He didn't have to give a three-point sermon about why he loved this individual. And sometimes removing the three-point call to altar call is, is is okay, as long as you don't make the ultimate solution something greater than the redemption of Christ. You're on the way to a good story, if you will.
0: You. You know, your example of uh, Flannery O'Connor is sort of an illustration of a point that you make often in the book, mm-hmm. which is um, really compelling, that really any good story requires a keen observer, you know, of both the the light, you know, and the shadow. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the the challenges that might be occurring to many of our viewers is, you know, in many ways, even when you are trying your best to see clearly and to be what you called an honest observer, you know, in your story, all of us are coming from places where our view, our abilities to observe are limited. They might be obscured they may be distorted without us even realizing it you know perhaps through no fault of our own absolutely and so with all of the limitations on our ability to see fully or truly how do we learn to be more honest observers in order to tell a good story
1: i think it takes a humble disposition and not entering into the space as lords, but entering into the space as humble servants and people who are willing to learn. Anytime you, you know, you enter into a space thinking that you are the arbitrator of all that is good and and right. I think you, you've come without ears to listen. And so I do think we all have tribes that form us, that help shape our identity. And then when you come to this you know, metropolis, what you're doing is you're negotiating. And I think the negotiation and the exchange is what makes communities, it makes it cities, it makes nations brilliant, it makes it beautiful. However, what, ha- what tends to happen is you begin to dominate and use your power in order to suppress or marginalize other people's voices in a world where, Christians are called to engage in love and serve is the wrong posture to have. Because I think ultimately we've taken on this attitude that the goal is to win. And I don't think Christ has called us to necessarily to to win the debate, it's to win with love. And sometimes love and winning is dying on the cross, it's dying to your own self-interest. And so for me, it's what does it mean to be fully confident that you believe in what you believe in but operating with a, a, a humble disposition, a humble posture. And knowing that though things were perfect at one point in time, we don't operate in a garden of Eden where everything and all our functions and our facilities are, are, are perfect. But now we operate more of what is a, like a garden of Gethsemane where there's pain, there's struggle. And we're all trying to figure out how do, we, how do we work through this tension of knowing that we have to take up our crosses and this is what God has called us to and though we don't want to do it, at some point, we must do this. And so there is no necessarily returning to the Eden on this side of heaven. And the garden in which we're trying to create flourishing and and life and community is a different garden of tension and frustration. But we have all the, the, the necessary tools, as Ephesians talks about, in order to make communities where people can operate within charity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the ultimate goal. Perfection is a far reach but charity is doable and mm-hmm. I think as Huey we and talks about hospitality is not forcing change but it's creating an environment where change can possibly happen yeah. and I think that's that's the the humble disposition is walking into a place and saying how do I not force people to put on my sin-stained culture but understand that there is their culture and as Richard Twist talks about not to remove and strip their identity to, to, to assimilate into mine but to bring observance To where there may be blind spots and staying in your own culture. And so helping you become a better global citizen and a better citizen of the world within your own culture. And where our culture, your culture, may conflict. And if there is dissonance, can there be reconciliation? Can there be repentance and repair? And if not, then we're going to have to figure out how to stay away from each other until until we can.
0: Oh, boy, there's so many directions we could go in that one. But I guess, you know, one of the first questions would be, you know, we're all living within different stories, stories that we have constructed and told, stories that have been told to us. And, you know, as you point out, a lot of those stories do affect how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see each other. Mm -hmm. So how does one sort of go about the, the process of, both recognizing and then hopefully repairing the flawed stories, you know, the the stories that distort our identity or our views of others' identity?
1: Yeah, I think we, you know, one of my main things is that we have to recognize that we can be a part of the problem. It's not just, oh, those people over there, they make the bad stories. They make the flawed stories. They create in ways that are quite detrimental to the development and the formation of people. It's like, no, no, we contribute to that. And I say in the book that every swing of the hammer is informed by something. You may not be the one who's making the decision in your vocation, but you're building something. You're, you're contributing to the building and you should know why you're, you're contributing in any way, shape or form. And so first I'd say, understand what you're doing. Everybody, and, when I, and in this book, when I say creative calling, I like to think of everybody as creative because we're all contributing to, to producing some sort of cultural product, I guess you can say. Parents produce children. Engineers produce things so that we can operate within our cities and our world in a functional way. Obviously artists create things that we can look upon and be impressed with. And and so in some way we're all creators and we're all creating. And so when you know you're evaluating yourself consistently and you're looking at and you're hearing, right? What people are saying. And I think just as much as you wanna be heard and just as intently as you speak, you should be able to listen. You should be just as as aggressive in your listening as you are in your speaking. Howard Zinn says that every cry of the poor is not legitimate. However, you'll never know true justice unless you listen to the poor. And until we get to a place where we see our work and we're like, oh, I may be contributing to the the detriment of my community, then the most necessary thing to do is to repent and then participate in the process of repair. I think to one of the things that America has done a good job of is admitted that there have been some systems and some practices in the past that were negligent, detrimental, deplorable, and inhumane. However, what I don't think has been great has been the repair. It's, it's like, oh, we apologize and we'll stop But you ought to understand the effect that some of these things had on people. And how do we participate, actively participate in the repentance and the repair of that thing? I know I've been married 18 years now. And if I am vile and disrespectful to my wife and I just treat her any kind of way, and then, you know, years into the marriage, I'm saying like, you know, I stopped doing those things, young lady. Like, what do you want from me? I'm no longer abusive to you. She's gonna say no. Like I am. I have trauma. I have been impacted. I have I have great effects from the way you've treated me. The way to repair will potentially be: let's go to counseling. Let's figure out how to repair the the actions. Now, you know, when I reach to touch you, you're not jumping anymore. I think there is a there is there are forms of prejudices that Black people have um, about the world in a good way that needs to be repaired because there's an assumption that if I walk into this space. That I am going to be, there's an assumption about me as an individual, and those stories need to be repaired on both sides. Because racism, slavery, marginalization, whatever, you know, the new sociological world, they're not just impacting the recipient, they also impact the people who harbor these things because they have a false sense of who they are. The recipient is always assuming that they have to prove themselves and as Toni Morrison says they they're always distracted from actually getting work done so they're trying to prove that they have culture they're proven they have language they're proven that they have art they're proven that they're smart and then the person who harbors these particular or participates in these particular practices feel like they're in the space where they need to be proven too. and those are those are very very damaging places to be and so The world needs a great repenting and repairing, not just physical, not just institutionally, but also a psychological repair. And I think that helps with how we tell stories and what we say about one another. And proximity helps with that, I think. But it's not just proximity. It's also how do we begin to to learn outside of our cultures. And there's so much information out there that you can connect to, even if you're not in proximity with people.
0: Right. Thanks, Joa. There's, there's a lot we could uh, dig into there. One of the things I did want to ask you about is, you know, we, we have the challenge in that you know, essentially all of us are flawed storytellers in yeah. some way. You know, and, and you mentioned in your book that many of your heroes were deeply flawed storytellers, you know, in some way or the other. You know, G.K. Chesterton, you pointed out, was, was against women's suffrage. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he wrote to so many of us, did not treat women well. I think you gave the example of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who uh, wrote a eulogy for Joseph Stalin. You know, there's important, even deep ways in which many heroes told a false story. Uh, But we're also, it seems like, in a time where even people who tell beautiful stories in some areas and false stories in others, there's kind of like a binary public reaction at times. Um, We we don't seem to do a great job in dealing with nuance. It's either adulation or cancellation. And wanted to get your thoughts on how do we think about, respond to, creatively engage a flawed storyteller? Yeah,
1: there's so many people there's the debate rages on on how to you how do you properly cancel someone, I guess, you know. And if I had it right, I'm sure I'll have a New York Times bestseller right now and people would be paying me hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak for five minutes on their platforms or whatever. I am of the belief that I don't think, you know, there are some people who definitely need to shut up. There are times when I've needed to shut up. There are times when people need to be told what you're saying is quite harmful and toxic and you need to take a back seat. But before I go there, I do feel like I personally would much rather allow for public debate about a person's work versus silencing people so that they can either move to the the silos or the shadows of the corner and build and develop, you know, followings where nobody's testing or challenging that thought publicly. Also believe, I am a huge believer in grace. Like I, much as I think that there are ridiculous thoughts in the world, as much as I believe that there are some ideas that are very harmful in the public square, I also believe that the best ideas ultimately went out at some place, at some point in time. To get really harsh, sometimes it takes violence for those ideas to, to win out. And that is the last resort. I do think we should allow for public discourse and, and not be so quick just because somebody shares an idea that we don't like to, to silence them and, and remove them from particular platforms. I do think that. Just
0: be clear, you're not uh, condoning violence in, in pursuit of a right idea.
1: No, no, no. I, what I am saying is that there have been times when violence has been necessarily as a, as a last resort. I will not say no. I like to think of myself as a pacifist in some ways. And so I I don't believe that violence is, is the answer for much of any solution. But I also would be naive to think that violence in the sense of war hasn't benefited the world in some ways with the removal of particular people because they've risen to particular powers and promoted particular ideologies that I think were so damaging that it would have manipulated the world for the worse so I don't know if that helps in any shape or form, but I do believe that even in those cases that folks who are in those positions I believe in a great gospel and and maybe naive of me and maybe um, short-sighted but I believe that the gospel is so powerful I believe truth is so so that it can win out and it can change the minds and souls and lives of people. When we remove people from the, the, the discourse and we remove them from hearing better ideas, I think we lose our opportunity to get them to see the better idea versus the idea that they may be perpetuating. Though these folks, some of these folks may teach and promote some ideas that may be harmful. The reality of it is, is like, for instance, I know that George Whitfield promoted slavery. I live in a state in which he lobbied for slavery to continue. But guess what? My daughter goes to a school called Woodfield Academy. (laughs) And uh, I recognize that in light of his ridiculousness, that there potentially could have been some good that he stood for. And I hope that when I die, if my story is to be told, that there will be some aspects of my story that are shameful, that I am not happy about. However, I would also hope that people would say, you know what? There are some aspects of the story that people need to hear. And I think that's ultimately what I am trying to argue is who is the whole person? What is the whole story? And how do we roll out the whole person so that we just don't celebrate the gold of an individual while ignoring the shadow? Because I think if we would have told whole stories after the reconstruction, then we probably wouldn't have monuments to Confederate soldiers, right? We, We won't be so quick to memorialize people if we told the truth ahead of time. So hopefully that was a uh, coaching.
0: <laughs> so you've, you've spent your life as a creative person and you close out your book with giving some fairly practical examples and encouragement uh, to people who, you know, find themselves wanting to help cultivate creative ways to reimagine and repair uh, the world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about those. And in particular, there was one that struck me, which was counterintuitive, uh, which was rest. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you about the link between rest and, you know, repairing the world and the the creative life, which we think of as being initiative taking and engaged and active and forward-leaning. Uh, So I wanted to ask you about that particular, but also just your your recommendations, principal suggestions for people who want to be more creatively engaged in reimagining a better story.
1: So, yeah, rest is, I, I found that rest is quite pertinent for me as a creative, because what society tells you, what the industry tells you is that you have to always be present in order to be relevant, in order to, to, to get yourself out there. You can't allow the consumer or the audience to forget about you. And what I've learned over time is that relevance isn't necessarily how often you speak, but to me relevance is when you speak, are people listening? And for me, it takes time in order to do that and to be in that place and that disposition because oftentimes what happens is you are so busy trying to ascend the hill and to get to the peak, to, to, to say I've arrived, that when you get there, you forget to live life. And you're at the, the apex and it gets lonely, nothing grows and lives at the top of mountains. And so what happens is you have to descend. You have to descend in, that, in order to live in a valley. And, and when you're in the valley, that's where life happens. And therefore, you're cultivating life. You're living life, and you're reimagining things. You're doing life with people. People are giving you imagination. People are giving you insight. So now you have the tools and the equipment to ascend the mountain again. So it's about peaks and valleys rather than just rising, staying. And I find that the busyness of life does a disservice to us. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude." So there's an there's a plague that that sweeps over the fictional city of Makando and the folks they don't sleep so insomnia so now they're they're up constantly and they find this to be a good thing because now they can get so much work done they're so productive right but there's one line in there that just rocks me when i read it he says the people forgot how to dream oh, yeah. and that's what happens when we work when we overwork ourselves when we are consistently trying to be busy when we're always producing producing and progressing and progressing that we forget what it was like to dream. We don't know that like, we're, we're just trying to produce so that we can be in everybody's faces. You guys hear my album? You hear my song? you got another song coming this week. I'm about to write this book. Got this book. You got, this book? You got this book. You got this book. You got this book. You got this song. You got this song. And it's like when do you have time to live life? When do you have time to dream? What happens is you're always producing and then eventually the things you produce can be detrimental to the world because now you're just producing for producing sake you're not producing for good you're producing so that you can just stay relevant and the last example i love marvel i have a daughter who's a you know marvel comics f- fanatic and uh, if you've watched any marvel film in the last you know 10 15 years you know who you know iron man is iron man is this amazing hero who flies all over the world and saves souls Uh, But Iron Man is also Tony Stark. Tony Stark is, you know, billionaire philanthropist. But the reason why Iron Man has to put on a suit and save the world is because Tony Stark creates all these problems in the world. (laughs) So my framework is, is, well, if Tony Stark didn't have such a bad theology of work, if he didn't create such bad things, he wouldn't have to put on a suit to fly across the world and save people. And in a sense, I feel like the Christian culture wants to get on planes and we want to go do missions and we want to go to these needy communities and we want to go to these particular organizations institutions and change the world but i feel like we can subsidize or we can we can alleviate a lot of that pain and hurt if only we just worked a little bit better Mm
0: -hmm. so we're going to turn to questions from our viewers and i see that there are quite a few that have come in uh so we'll start with one from dave sexton with a, a very interesting question he mentions uh, that you show mentioned us at times as either heroes or villains. But is there a danger of stories where we are always at the center?
1: Amen. So, if we could get real biblical and theological, I would say that we are not, we are, we are role players. Mm-hmm. Um, I love sports, you know, greatest team of all time, the Lakers, right? Um, if, just to make an analogy, like, you know, Kobe Bryant is the, the, the center player, uh, but Kobe is he, he can't win unless he uses the role players around him. right? Um, and so I think though we are not the center and we are not the main characters, the reality is, is that we are used in a way that is valuable. Um, Oftentimes we look at David and Goliath as a story of us being David versus Goliath. And the reality is, is we are not David. We are the Israelites who are, who are, who are seeking somebody to fight the battle for us. And Jesus is that individual who steps up and says, okay, I will be the advocate that you, that you need. And so in a sense, uh, I think one of the greatest detriments of what I communicate in this book is that. The problem with storytelling, in, especially in American history, is that we always center ourselves as the, the main character. And then when you do that, you make your affections, your affinities, your sensibilities the most important. And then when other people come into the story, what happens is they get marginalized. And so how about we approach this as we are all the role characters, ancillary characters, who are here to participate in making the story of God more brilliant and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Yeah. Great point. And great question.
0: So our next question comes from Annie Barnett and Annie asks, she says, I really appreciate your emphasis on telling the whole story, the gold and the uglier, painful, even traumatic stories. Mm-hmm. Are there practices you would recommend to other artists, both to tell through our art, but also to live a whole and integrated life? Big question. Yeah.
1: Chapter In chapter six of my book, I think I give some some pretty practical things, especially for people of faith. Um, I'd say you you have to, in some ways, embrace, as I said with Flannery O'Connor, embrace the grotesque, embrace the darkness of the world. I've been into movies. I've watched a lot of Christian movies. And oftentimes, not all, oftentimes some of those movies I feel do a disservice to what is evil and what is mm. and what is uh, grotesque? It's like, is, oh, the greatest sin you struggle with is pride, my friend. Oh, okay. Well, you know. Oh, uh, when you're mad at somebody, you say "frick" and and filth. Oh, uh, there's no expletives. There's no there's no bad words that come out your mouth. Oh, okay. This is a this is an interesting interesting struggle here. Mm-hmm. And the more we're honest about um, the darkness, and the more we can engage the darkness without celebrating the darkness, if you will. I think those are good practices to engage and to begin to tell a whole story. The other thing I do is I love reading a bunch of, um, I guess you can say either faith adjacent or non faith based work. For instance, I'll read a Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye and there's incest in that book that happens. Now she's not glorifying incest. She's not saying like, this is something that we should do. But the reality is is incest is something that happens. It's real. It's prevalent. And how do how do a, how does a family live after after an act of incest and the child is pregnant from that incest? Mm-hmm. Like these are the types of stories that it may not happen in every community, but it happens in some communities. Drug addiction. How do we talk about that in a way that doesn't glorify drug addiction? But it's but it, it brings it to the front, and it tells a real story about like you know, addiction, uh, sex and, and, and desires that people have, rather than avoiding these things, we have to engage it and we have to write about these things and not put on the veneer of of perfection. And so I just like to read and see how the greats are talking about the tensions of the world, because I think that helps inform me on how to do it from a, a worldview that I think brings a greater, I would like to think, a greater observation of redemption of, and, and not feeling like I have to tie up every story and every song with a, with a wonderful conversion at the yeah. end. Yeah. Sometimes truth is hard and people wrestle with it for years.
0: Well, that sort of tees up a question from William Robinson, who uh, asked, I guess, in addition to Toni Morrison and Flannery O'Connor, what are some of the novelists who have shaped your vision of the world and artistic style?
1: I love Chinwa Achebe, he who things fall apart. He doesn't feel this pressure to have to write in linear like a linear story. That's given me the freedom and the liberty to not feel like everything has to be A to Z. And and sometimes it's there's a, a organized dysfunction if you will, you're like, "Okay, now what? What's happened? Where are we?" and uh um, it gives the, the the reader and the listener some keeps them on their toes if you will. Um, but of course I love Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison is my favorite of all time. She is brilliant. I love the historical fiction. I love Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his magical realism. But the one person I feel like I love her Zora Neale Hurston because of her hermeneutic of human beings. I love the way She tells, I think, honest stories about humans, especially black culture. One of the things that we have to understand about Zora Neale Hurston is she gained the prominence during the Harlem Renaissance. And the Harlem Renaissance was a time where black culture was trying to propagate its exceptionalism, like, okay, racial propaganda is saying that black people are slow and stupid and we are violent and all these things. Well. Renaissance was trying to push against those stereotypes. And here's the exceptional of our, of our culture. Here's the exceptional thinkers. Here the exceptional art, the exceptional music, the exceptional movement that we offer to the world. And th- these are the folks that they propagated. Zora Neherson went the other way. Rather than talking about the exceptional of the Black culture, she said, I want to go to low culture. I want to focus on folklore. And I want to show that these people here are extraordinary as well. And a lot of people looked at her, they chided her for, for kind of like showing off the, what was low culture, because during this time, it was like, this, these are not the people we need to spotlight. This is not the kind of culture we need to spotlight. But she brought great dignity, I believe, to low culture, as, as, as they would call it. Um, storytelling through uh, folklore and children's stories and interviewing of slaves and spotlighting women as protagonists in her stories. And so... Um, I think the way that she views human beings is something that I just, I would hope to get an uh, honest capture of when I write and when I talk about people and not just talk about the exceptional, but to talk about what people have, uh, talk about the people in the margins, if you will, and give great dignity to those folks so that they can be honored as well.
0: Well, there have been so many good questions and I regret that we won't get to more of them, but we're going to take one more and this is from Charlotte Donlin. And Charlotte asks, how does making and engaging art deepen the ways that we belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world?
1: It's, it's, it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant how she asked that, God, ourselves, others, and the world. Because I think about Genesis 1, God creates, we are a reflection of his creation. We are to reflect him in how we not only fellowship with him, but fellowship with others, fellowship with ourselves, and with the world, with the creation. And so um, the better we understand that we are creators in every aspect of the word, and we are made to create in every aspect of it, then, and how that was corrupted, and how Jesus is redeeming all those things, then the more intimate we'll become with our work, the more intimate we'll not only become with our God, with others, ourselves, but then we'll we'll also understand that there was a great command to create and cultivate and then we'll become deeply intimate with that work and it won't just be something that we do. It will be something that is a part of our identity as worshipers that we create, not just an activity that we do to pass time. No, this is worship. And this means deep intimacy with not only God and others, but with our work, like George Washington Carver was a perfect example of this. This man literally spoke to flowers (laughs) and he said his speaking to flowers is what gave him the secrets of creation. It sounds ridiculous, but I think that's an aspect of intimacy that you have when you have a a great relationship with God and and work, is that you you feel like you can commune with with the immutable. And when you do that, you become so I don't know intimate with the work that you do that you end up creating good for other people and as George Washington Carver did so I think the more intimate we are with God the more the more uh, intimate we are with other people ourselves and work the better creators we become
0: that's great it's a vivid word picture to end on speaking to flowers so show thanks so much as promised show the last word is yours
1: All right. Where do you stand? What's your standard? What's your view? What gives you right to think the things that you do? Is it school? Is it news? Is it man's wisdom? Is it religion? Why listen when you make your decisions? It's funny how some people, they see the Lord. Some see him as a pacifist. Some see him with a sword. The Lord who hated sin showed grace to the thief, saved the lowly prostitute from being stoned in the street. He was holy, but he hung with the sinful, drove the wicked out by flipping over tables in the temple. He took a wrongful death and yet he remained silent, but he said he's coming back and he is bringing violence. Many people isolate him just to make him fit their cause, but never to involve the greater context at all. So are there two Christs totally unrelated or maybe it's one Christ and it's pretty complicated.
0: Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.